episode 34 of The Build. We're in our Jake Allen era. Our Michael McCarran age. I spelled Michael wrong in my notes. Our Nigel Dawes period. Even our rookie Shane Corson time. Does this bit do anything for anyone? I enjoy it because I get to remember guys, which I'll never stop doing. But I always wonder if like if this if this is a good way to start the episode. Because eventually I don't think the Canadians are gonna do this before I get to episode one hundred. So eventually I'm gonna run out of names. I'm gonna run out of numbers. Am I gonna have to do like goal scorers? Maybe I'll do that. Anyway. Since you last heard my voice, the Canadians have actually won twice. Um, both of them home wins. Uh, both pretty enjoyable games. I can't speak for the St. Louis one. I haven't watched it. I was I was at a party that night. Um, I'm going to try to check it out this weekend. But it looked like it was a lot of fun. It looked like, you know, the exact kind of like uh, sugar rush of a game that the Canadians kind of need to play in in order to win. Um, and the Nashville game was fun too. It felt a lot like that sort of, you know, very high event hockey. Um, but even coming out of that game, the biggest story wasn't even the game. And trust me, I have a very long portion of the the outline will be devoted just to that. But even with the wins and losses, there's still plenty to talk about. And there's one place I want to start, and it's a, a person I talked about a lot last week, um, that being head coach Marty St. Louis. Um, I wanted to start with a quote that St. Louis gave on Wednesday. Um, Mark, Marc-Andre Perot of TV, TVA picked it up. It's in French, but the translation was essentially... A young hockey team is like a puppy. You know he'll pee on the carpet occasionally, but that doesn't mean you don't like him. It's to show him good habits. I think the end of that isn't translated exactly, but still a pretty good job from Twitter's built-in translator. Um, I'm sure there are some people who read that quote and, you know, roll their eyes because coaches either speak like robots programs to take your time and give you no information, like a Daryl Sutter, or they speak in entirely empty platitudes. And I don't think that this is one of those that I would categorize in either one of those situations. Um, you know, it, it seems like that was very pointed. It seems it seems like, you know, he understands the task at hand with with this team. I think there's been a lot of conversation about how, man, it doesn't look like Marty's going to make it through this, just seeing how miserable he is on the bench. But he understands, like, look, this is, the, this is part of being a young hockey team is that there are going to be things that we have to learn not to do. Um, Last week, I I took a big portion of this show to talk about Slavkovsky and his development and how we kind of, everybody has different ideas for how it should look and feel. Um, And, you know, the idea that some think that Marty St. Louis doesn't like Uri Slavkovsky or that he feels like, or that we feel like where he's punishing Slavkovsky unjustly. Um, if Marty is to be believed in this quote, and why wouldn't he be, he doesn't take the mistakes of young players as signs of failure. Um, just as that, just as that, mistakes to be fixed. Um, is the analogy a bit heavy-handed? Yeah, maybe, but it sure stuck with me since I read it. I've thought about it constantly since then. Um, and if that's the message he's going to the players with, I think that, you know, that's a really nice environment to learn in and become NHL players. It, it he Slavkovsky's not being treated like we saw 
you know, Galchenyuk in the past, like Kotkaniemi in the past, where one mistake saw them stapled to the bench. That's not happening here. Um, you know, that's th that getting Slavkovsky in situations where he can make mistakes is why I think at the end of the day, I kind of like that he's in the NHL. You know, it, everyone seems to believe, you know, not everyone, but there's a lot of people who seem to believe that, you know, developing a young scorer, a young forward means we have to put him in, in a league that he can absolutely dominate and not worry about not scoring. And I don't know that that's necessarily the case because there's there's no, you know, it's sort of like Shane Wright going back to the OHL. I don't know how much there is for him to learn there. Um, I think it's a smart move by the Seattle Kraken still in that they're not going to burn a year of his deal. He can go there and he can come back and potentially play in the playoffs um, for the Kraken. But when it comes to Slavkovsky, I don't think that like the idea is that Montreal has to send him to a league that he can play better in. He needs to, I, 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 I understand the idea that he needs to be in the NHL in, in order to learn how to play in the NHL. Um, so that's what's in this quote from Marty that I like, but there's also an implied part of this quote that should matter. What does this say about the older guys on the team? You know, if we're following the, the, the analogy here, they're not puppies anymore. They're not supposed to pee on the carpet. And if you're the Canadians, you've been cleaning a lot of carpets recently. Um, you know, I, I think it's been increasingly difficult to watch Joel Edmondson play hockey. It's been real tough at times to watch Yoel Armia play hockey. He's since turned it around. Um, it's been difficult to watch Evgeny Dodonov play hockey. He had a nice game against Nashville. But in general, like, I think that this kind of leads into some of his lineup decisions, and that what that's where I want to head with this next. Headed into into the game against Nashville, Marty, who has a a decent complement of healthy skaters, chose to play eleven forwards and seven defensemen instead of playing Mike Hoffman, who spent the third straight his third straight game in the press box. Um, yeah, Montreal is dealing with some, with a lot of injury concerns at the moment, but they still have a full roster right now. They're at 23 of 23 roster spots. They just sent down Anthony Richard and called up Jesse Ulonen, who I thought was fantastic against Nashville. And I don't, if he keeps playing like that, they're not going to be able to send him back down. Um, you know, it, it, Montreal had extra players at every position including defense, which is what he chose to do. He played all seven of his healthy defensemen um, as opposed to, you know, playing a regular 12 forward, six defenseman lineup. Um, Marty would rather bench Hoffman at this point in time and play Barron, you know, as as that rotating defenseman um, and rotate in Jonathan Drouin and, and Jesse Yolonen on random lines instead of, you know, playing a standard complement of players, what does that say about the way that he sees Hoffman right now? And, you know, I think statistically anyway, Hoffman's been one of Montreal's more positive players with regards to, like, on-ice impact. Um, he's the top forward in on-ice expected goals, um, uh, you know, expressed as a percentage. Um, and he's a positive possession player among forwards on the Canadians, which is a really hard thing to find. 
Um, you know, and that's if you take all the forwards on the Canadians who have played at least 25 games, you'll find it's kind of like the core group of the Canadians forwards at the moment. He's he he reports very well in those numbers. But with that aside, St. Louis must see something in his game that he doesn't like. And because he's not one of the young guys making those mistakes, he sits. And on top of that, the team is suddenly winning. They've won two of their last three. They won a game on a night where Boston lost, which is wild to even consider that both of those things could happen at the exact same time is insane coaches hate changing winning lineups if you're St. Louis you really don't have any reason to change this lineup they've been playing well unless you're bringing back in a Mike Matheson who you know we'll get into later but on the other side of that you know there are players who play well who who do get promoted Jake Evans has played some really inspired hockey as of late He's looked like he's really wanted to make a difference every time he was on the ice. And more often than not, he is making a difference on the ice. Um, when the Canadians tweeted out the lines for the Nashville game, his line was listed second. And it started the game, which I don't think is a coincidence. Um, and I I don't think it's, it's any coincidence that they started the Evans line as opposed to uh, Suzuki, Caulfield, and Doc because the latter line, Suzuki's line, you know, their first shift against Seattle basically sealed the game, which it shouldn't happen, but it did happen. They were unable to get anything going, and it snowballed from there. So starting Evans, playing him a lot, um, he's getting some really good offensive looks. He he scored against Nashville. He had a breakaway where he hit the post. It was, he's been playing some really, really good hockey lately. Um, and, you know, the aforementioned Slavkowski, he's still lining up with Dvorak and Anderson, two, you know, very good, you know, good NHL players. I don't mean to say very good and then take it away from them. Anderson's been fine. Dvorak's been fine. Um, and Slavkovsky was great against Nashville. It was probably his best game in a month. And, you know, we, we give Marty crap for when he, you know, demotes Slavkovsky to the fourth line late in games. Ten, uh, against Nashville, we saw the opposite. St. Louis showed he trusted Slavkovsky by putting him out there to defend the two-goal lead when Nashville had the net empty. So, I mean, you know, we talk about St. Louis and how he thinks of young players. And, you know, last time I, I talked about how we, we need to separate what the old organization did from what this new organization is doing. And if you need to look for signs that things are, are different, these are those signs. Slavkovsky's still very young. He still has not played a lot of NHL hockey. He still has not played a lot of North American hockey because those totals are both the same. He He's not used to playing on this ice surface. Every game he's figuring something else out. Um, but we see good shifts from him. We see, you know, I think it was his first shift in that Nashville game. They, they got like, they, they must have got three or four good scoring chances from just right inside the blue paint around Askarov for Nashville. He's he when he's in those when he's in those situations I think he thrives. If we start to see Slavkovsky or some of the other younger guys sit for mistakes that they make, that's where I'll start to be, you know, a little concerned. Um, and by sit I don't necessarily mean just in-game demotion. I mean, you know, scratched or starting the game on the fourth line. This this roster is not talented enough for for Yuri Slavkovsky to be playing you know below the third line. There's no reason for that to happen. 
He's still lining up with Anderson and Dvorak, and I imagine when Hoff, when Monahan comes back, they'll slide Monahan in to that situation because that line, Monahan, Anderson, and Slavkovsky looked really good before Monahan got hurt. Slavkovsky's still getting second wave power play time. Slavkovsky played 16 minutes against Nashville, well above his 12 minute average. So you know, I think it. You know, we we looked at when things got really tough for Slavkovsky. And it was hard to, to find positives. This one wasn't this game wasn't difficult to find positives from. And he's the kind of player who I think this will this will snowball into better games to come. Um I really I really do think that he as Marty says, he's still a puppy. He likely will be for some time. As long as Marty sticks to that ideology that the young guys are allowed to make mistakes right now, the guys will be in good hands. So with that. I'll shift gears from the young guys on the Canadians right now, and I want to take a look at some of the young guys that are to come in the 2023 entry draft. Um, and that's by looking at the mock draft um, put out by Elite Prospects. It's their first one of the year. Um, EP Rinkside is the blog where it's a, it's a premium paywall to access the full mock draft. I recommend it. I think it's like 8 bucks a month, 9 bucks a month. Um it's a pretty nice resource for fans who want to learn more about prospects. They released a draft. They release a draft guide every year, which I can't wait to get my hands on. Um, and I, you know, a lot of the elite prospects guys, like, um, I believe David St. Louis is writing for them. They're, they're all very, very good at what they do. Um, I won't give away all the information in this mock draft out of respect for that paywall. Um, but I found it interesting that at pick number six, as determined by Tankathon's lottery simulator, um, Montreal drafts a the Russian winger Matvey Michkov. Um, why is that interesting? Well, the big concern with Michkov right coming out of this draft, or coming into this draft, I should say, is that he has a KHL contract that is quite long. Um, he is signed to SKA St. Petersburg until the spring of 2026 meaning any team drafting him would have to wait three years to get him over here. That, of course, is barring any kind of contractual funny business that Michkov and his agent could play up. Um, I could be mistaken, but I believe KHL players can buy themselves out of their contracts, but the odds of an 18-year-old having that kind of money is pretty low, and NHL teams are not allowed to pay for that buyout. Um, They'll get fined um, as a result. So if you draft Michkov... You're not getting him until he's 21, almost 22 years old in the fall of 2026. So that's that's just something you have to weigh when it comes to drafting a player that high. Um, because I think a lot of teams in that situation, it's really hard to sell that. It's hard to sell that that long um, that long build. Well, he's gonna be here soon. We just have to wait. Montreal, I feel like, is in a decent spot. Not only because, you know, we're at the very beginning of this rebuild still, but also because they have a second first round pick that looks like it, it's probably going to be at least in the top 10 in the pick that Montreal acquired from Florida. So Montreal could afford to go to go to play the long game with Michkov early on and then take, you know, if let's say Florida's pick is anywhere from 8 to 10 pick another dyna- another really, really good forward there. Um, I know Andrew Cristal is one that, like, to me, is very exciting because his numbers are, you know, 
comparable to that of of um, Connor Bedard. He's, they're not the same kind of player, but you know, uh, Crystal is. Every time I t- I look on Twitter, some hockey some some scout is is saying nice things about Crystal and sharing some video of him doing something ridiculous. The so that that all of that stuff with Michkov, his contract situation is entirely real, right? That's not media manufactured. It's not analyst manufactured. It's real. He has a contractual obligation to St. Petersburg of the KHL until 2026. The aspect of Michkov that I find entirely unfounded, at least to this point, is this Russian factor that we hear about all the time. Basically, it's the idea that as soon as things get tough for this player, they'll bolt for the KHL or in Michkov's case, that he never leaves the KHL, that he just stays over there in Montreal, wastes a really high draft pick on a player they'll never get. Um, I don't put a ton of stock into that argument because there are not a lot of high-profile examples of that. Vitaly Kravtsov of the Rangers invoked his out clause this, was it last year, this year, um, when the Rangers tried to send him to Hartford. But that's a collectively bargained issue that isn't specific to Russian players. Any p- European player can do that. It's literally called a European out clause. Um, I think the concerns regarding drafting Russian players is something that draft analysts and is something that media have more pondered out loud about um, rather than something that's actually happening. Three Russians were picked in the first round of the 2022 uh, entry draft in Montreal, which compares to, I believe, two drafted in 2021 and four in 2020. So not an unreasonable amount of Russians picked, regardless of what direction you fall in, if it's too high or too low. Um, Ryan Kennedy uh, is another fantastic um, prospect writer. He writes for the Hockey News. I believe he's their editor-in-chief now. Um, He provided a tidbit that a scout he knows started to bring up. Um, He started to bring up character concerns with Michkov. But Kennedy didn't take these concerns at face value. The whole, the article posits it as a conspiracy theory um, that teams are trying to psych each other out of on drafting Michkov, trying to make him slide later and later into that first round. Um, Kennedy points it out pretty point blank. No one mentioned character concerns a year ago. Why now? Just as the 2023 draft is starting to really, you know, pick up speed and media attention. It's a compelling argument that maybe teams are trying to force Michkov to slide outside the top five. Um, but I think it just kind of wraps wraps up all of that sort of, you know, Russian fear into an, a nice little package that, that I don't think the Russian factor is real. I don't believe in it. Um, there are Russian players who who desperately wanted to come over here. I was just reading, you know, in preparation for this, I was reading about how um, Evgeny Malkin came over here. He signed a deal to stay with his KHL team. I don't remember which one, but it was after he was drafted by the, the Pittsburgh Penguins. They kept him up until like three in the morning in, the, in negotiations that he did not want to sign. He didn't want to sign this contract. And he finally just relented and signed it. And he immediately regretted it. And he called his agent and they had to figure out a way to get him out of there. Like there for every, you know, I, I, you just don't see the players who just, well, I'm never going over. I'm never going back to, I'm never going to the NHL or I'm going to leave the NHL as soon as things get tough. It just doesn't happen. Even, you know, the, the, one of the higher profile examples of it is, is Neil Yakupov, but he, he didn't, he didn't bail because he was Russian. He tried to make it work here and he just never worked. So he left. He just, he couldn't hack it. Um, so what, 
you know that you know that idea of them of of scouts psyching each other out on Michkov to try to make him slide. If Montreal, you know, is just outside the top five, it, elite prospects seems to think that this would slide him right into Montreal's lap. So I want to. I I pondered myself: Should the Canadians do it? And I think at the end of the day, I'd really be in favor of them taking Michkov. Um, elite prospects claims he's the second most dynamic player in this draft, behind Bedard, of course. Um, they they love his playmaking ability. He's got quick hands. They love the quick release on his shot. Um, if the Canadians miss out on Bedard, Michkov is a nice consolation prize. Um, I thought I also thought that his timeline matches up with the Canadians' competitive window pretty well. Um, in three years, you would have to hope that the Canadians would at least be a a playoff bubble team hanging around. And then you add a dynamic twenty two year old winger to your lineup. And oh yeah, he plays. He he's he's a left-handed winger, which you desperately need on your top line next to Suzuki and Caulfield. And oh yeah, he's now on his entry-level deal, so you'll be paying him very little to do all of the things he's going to do. Um, plus, since he won't be here from twenty twenty-three to twenty twenty-six, he won't be able to help the Canadians get better, so they'll still lose games and have high draft capital in those years. Um, Obviously, the best case scenario is that the Canadians go back to tanking. Florida keeps losing. Montreal wins both lotteries, picks one and two, and they go Bedard, Michkov back to back. The odds of that happening as of right now are particularly low, so I wouldn't count on it. But remember, I don't think Montreal's in any rush to get this off the ground. At least they shouldn't be, but and, and we haven't seen any indication to that fact. We haven't seen any indication that the Canadians are rushing this rebuild yet. If they take Michkov in the first round with, you know, one of their first round picks, I think that would be a really good sign that the Canadians are not rushing this, that they are in this for the long haul, because they'd be taking a player who has really, really dynamic potential that they would have to wait for. So remember, Montreal's not in a rush. They don't intend on winning for a while, and the Russian factor is a myth. I'm curious to see how the opinion on, on Michkov develops between now and the draft. Um, but this is a player I think could, who could, you know, from, from everything I've seen, from what Elite Prospects has to say, from what Ryan Kennedy has to say, from what all the prospect people on Twitter um, talk about, I just, as, as I was sitting down to record this episode, I saw Byron Bader of hockey prospecting tweet his NHL, um, you know, NHL E, which is his evaluation of, you know, where prospects are and, and, and their value that they'd bring to the NHL. It all looks really good for this kid. So I know Bedard is the main focus and until Montreal is not draft, it has not won that, that first overall pick. I will continue to believe that Montreal is, is th that that's the guy. But Michkov is a very, very good consolation prize. All right, on to something a little less positive, um, unfortunately. Um, injury updates. Gallagher's back on the IR out a minimum of six weeks. It's the same lower body injury that he just came back from. It's really starting to feel like he's headed to the same place that, uh, that Paul Byron and Carey Price live. Which is, a, it's a shame. You see, you, you know, you saw how much all of those guys gave to, to be in that cup final. I think Price and Weber gave everything. They gave every last drop they had. Um, same with Byron. Same with, with Gallagher. 
Um, every time Gallagher comes back with injury, he's just he's he's injured very soon after that, and he has not looked like the same player. Um, he at the beginning of the season, I thought he looked pretty decent, but I mean, he's not moving particularly well. And you know, he was never a, a great skater to begin with. Skate. I mean, I mean, he was a, he's a fine NHL skater. It just wasn't an aspect of his game that you, you know, that jumped off the page. And neither was his shot, which has been, you know, hampered due to his, you know, his repeated blunt force trauma to his hands. Um, I'm glad he got that money before he got hurt, because if he got hurt, if he was hurt like this before the contract, you know, he would have never gotten it. It seems like the contracts Bergevin handed out towards the end of his tenure were always for services provided and not for services to come. Um, which stinks. That that contract's brutal. Even if Gallagher is on IR for the rest of his career, I don't think that contract is easy to move right now just because of how much term is left on it. Um, so we'll have to see when he comes back how he looks. I, I'm, not, I'm not all that optimistic um, that, that Gallagher will be um, suddenly healed back to 100% when he comes back, but we'll see. Um, Mike Matheson was back at practice in a full contact jersey, which is a great sign. Um, he'll travel with the Canadians to New York for their back-to-back games against the Islanders and Rangers. He'll be a much-needed addition to that blue line because they have really struggled since Gooley went down. Um, I feel like Edmondson's trying to do too much out there. I feel like with another, um, you know, another seasoned veteran back there, it'll it'll work out better. Plus, you can then send Barron back down to Laval. Um, and not play Chris Weidman again, which would be best. Um, and Monahan is still out with that lower body injury. A week ago, they said two weeks, so we're probably about a week away from seeing him play again. He's practicing on his own, shooting pucks. That's really great. Um, because I do really think that they're they, there's like I feel like there's like a two percent chance they keep him past the deadline. I think I think some they're going to move him for for a nice haul. Uh, with the centerpiece being a first-round pick. All right. One last thing to do in this one before I call it quits for the week, and that's to talk about P.K. Subban's return. Uh, Before the game against the Predators, as I'm sure you're all aware of, Montreal honored P.K. Subban at the Bell Center. And in retrospect, that term honored was odd, to me at least. Um I can't place it, but I don't know that I've ever seen a team play a tribute video for a player, hand the player a microphone, they walk out on the ice, speak, and then they leave. Um, you know, the only the, the only comparable I can, I can remember is Saku Koivu's ceremony where he came back. And it was very similar in the fact that they brought him into a game. They brought him in before a game against the Ducks, who was, you know, the only other NHL team Saku Koivu played for. Um, and Koivu had a, had, was wearing a Canadian's jersey. He, you know, had a very long speech at a podium. The team gave, gave him a gift. Um, the players skated up, to, you know, the players that he played with came up first to, to be in the picture. Um, Markov took the, the face off. Um, it just seemed very different from that. That seemed like Koivu was being honored, you know? I don't I don't necessarily know that we needed all that for PK because Saku and PK have 
Both have tremendous impacts in Montreal. Different impacts, but tremendous impacts. The thing I'm struggling with the word honoring is, is I don't think that's what the Canadians wanted to do here. Uh, to me, this felt like fan service, and I don't say that as a bad thing. I know it has a negative connotation when it comes to movies and television, but here, I think it's entirely it's entirely warranted. This was fan service. They wanted the fans to have some closure from an event that, to be honest, sucked. And I think, you know, honestly, I think Jeff Molson has regretted it since it happened. Not to, and you know I'll go into this more later, but that's not this is not a slight at Shea Weber. It's just the the fact that they had to move PK Subban, that's the problem. So he got like five minutes to speak. Yeah, standing ovation. The building was loud. Carey Price came out. They triple low five one last time, which I'm glad they did. Um, and that's it, at least ceremonially. That's the the end of P.K. Subban as a Montreal Canadian, as we know it. And that kind of bummed me out. Um, you know, first and foremost, like, you feel like you're getting old, right? Like, that, you know, the, the, the P.K. Subban, Carey Price era for the Canadians was very short. But it, it made such an indelible impact on me as a fan. Like, I don't know if I'd be doing this, you know, if I hadn't watched that era of the Canadians. Um. When Price came out, you know, he surprised everyone. I wonder if he surprised PK. I haven't heard anything about that. But And when they triple 005 and they walked off together, you know, with arms around each other, I, I cried. I had tears. Like, and I'm, you know, I don't, I don't mind admitting that. Because, you know, I, I think deep down I was just really sad because I, the more I thought about it, none of this had to end this way. The triple O five was the best moment of the night, and I'm sorry, but Jeff Molson doesn't get a pat on the back for that. He brought in the guys who made it an organizational mandate that they were going to make PK a better person, and that PK was not team focused. He, as far as I'm concerned, Jeff Molson wears that trade as much as Mark Bergevin and Michelle Terrian do. For as long as I've been a fan, the Canadians have always been able to excuse their years of poor team construction and, and lack of vision and lack of any sort of cohesive theme to their roster by saying that none of the top players want to play here. Well, well this guy did. PK has said, you know, the only place he ever wanted to play was in Montreal. And instead of, you know, taking that kind of player of a, of a tremendous skill level and making him a Canadian for life, you made it, you made a really bad gamble on his bridge contract. And then when it burned you, you ran him out of town. You left Mark Bergevin and Jeff Molson, because I'm, I'm letting him wear this as well. They left that, that no trade clause, you know, kicking off in there as a way as an out clause for them. So I'm not going to give a ton of cr credit to the Canadians here as, as an organization who <laughs> they did a nice thing for fans and that's all well and good, but they're the reason this moment was necessary. You don't get partial credit for that. 
And again, as I talked about with Andrew Berkshire and Eric Young on Game Over after the Nashville game, none of this is a shot at the player or person that Shea Weber was. Shea Weber was a reluctant participant in all of this. And by that, I don't mean he didn't want to be here, just that he had nothing to do with the trade that sent him here. And when he was asked about P.K. Subban, you could see how, you could see how frustrated he got. And reasonably so. Trading, for, trading Subban for Weber and putting Weber in that situation was pretty unfair. And not only that, it's an entirely separate tangent, never finding Weber a suitable defense partner. They went from Markov, and then they, 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 the, the, the day before, two days before they, dra- they traded for Weber, they drafted Mikhail Sergachev. And then a year later, they traded him. And I know people are going to say, well, him and Ben Sherratt led the Canadians to a, a, a cup final. Him and Ben Sherratt were brutal together. Carey Price led the Canadians to a cup final. Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield led the Canadians to a cup final. It was not Shea Weber and Ben Sherratt. Anyway. And that's not to say they had no impact on the team. Their leadership, the sacrifices that they made were what led the Canadians. But it wasn't them as an on-ice pairing. All they did was cross-check guys. And they bled scoring chances, and it was brutal to watch because Shea Weber's body was completely broken. It's why he's not playing anymore. Anyway, the part of this that's like really frustrating to me right now is that this iteration of the Canadians loves to show off personalities of their players. They've essentially turned every young player on this team into a social media content farm. Go scroll on the Canadians' Twitter feed right now. Go scroll through their media. It's just Cole Caulfield smiling and laughing at the camera. And Arbor Jackai smiling and laughing at the camera. PK was that before anybody else was. And that's why traditional hockey people couldn't stand him. And it's why they always said, oh, he can't read a room. He's, he's, he's bad in the locker room. It's because he had that personality. And that's why now players have more. And they feel more welcome being themselves. PK was the catalyst for that. Not just, you know, in this league, in this sport. He was the catalyst for it. So while I was really happy to see PK at the Bell Center again, and it was awesome to see him with Carey Price, and to just hear the Bell Center that loud and that happy again for those guys, it you know, that was really nice. But at the end of the, all of this, it's still a really sore subject for me because the, if the Canadians had truly done all of this right, that moment before the game on Thursday would have never happened. It shouldn't have ended like that. We can't change the injuries to Price and Subban, but the real goodbye should have come while, while they were still here, while they were still in uniform. The fact that neither one of them was wearing a Canadian's jersey is just, it's, it's hard to associate them with it. It's hard to associate this, them, you know, us as remembering him in a Canadian's uniform. When Saku Koivu came out, he did his thing. He was in a Canadian's jersey. It's a very weird choice that they didn't go that way here. Maybe it was PK who didn't want to, but Price was there and he wasn't in jersey. He wasn't in a jersey. And at the end of all of this, the one thing that I keep coming back to, and I hate talking about this guy, I really do. But when you bring PK back into the fold, this is unavoidable. The core that Bergevin inherited included a future Norris Trophy winner, a future Hart and Vesna winner, 
future 30 goal scorers in Pacioretty and Gallagher, and the third overall pick in 2012. Bergevin should have accomplished more than he did with that core. He should have had more than one incredibly magical playoff run that the team just just almost won out of pure spite. That happened 10 years after Bergevin took the job. Three or four plans later, he landed on that. It shouldn't have ended this way. The 2014 run was great, and it sucks that Price got hurt. But Price was Price came back the next season and won the Vesna, and he won the heart, and the team got bounced in the first round because they had a coach who hate who hated offense. He wanted to win every game one nothing or two one. And they had a GM who just who could not find a center to save his life. He finally did it in Nick Suzuki, and I'm and I, we've talked about it on this show. I'm nearly convinced it was an accident. But all of this just stirs up really bad memories of how this all ended and how it didn't need to end this way. But I mean, other than that, it was great. <laughs> That's all I've got today. Um, no building blocks or drawing boards this week. I went on long enough. Um, thanks again for listening. If you liked it, share it. If you didn't, tell me about it. After this, go check out Game Over. Uh, Game Over Montreal and SDPN. The front half is Andrew, professional wrestler Eric Young, and I breaking down the game. Um, and what we thought of the pregame festivities and PK Subban. I'll admit, I, I'm, not a big, uh, I'm not a big wrestling guy. I, tried, I did some reading on Eric Young when I found out he was going to be on the show. And the back half of this that show is basically just all wrestling stuff. So I go real quiet. But even as someone who is not even, you know, a little bit aware of what's going on in the wrestling world, it was all really fascinating to listen to. Um, so I think you'll enjoy it. I certainly did. I lived it. And it was a lot of fun to listen to. Um, so go give that a listen after this. Um all right, the music you heard at the beginning of the show and the music you're hearing now is Inside by Fred Mugg. Check the description for the link to his Bandcamp page where you can find the rest of his stuff. Oh, and links to everything else down in the description. All right, see you guys. Bye.